Hey there everybody, you're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host Dahi, and today we're going to be once more taking the plunge into the world of facts with our Long Rain Fact Dump series. However, this is a second themed episode of Fact Dumps, and it's on a topic very dear to me, Ancient Egypt. Now before I go any further, this episode of The Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. Supernatural and horror mentions, crime mentions, weapon mentions, mummification mentions, murder mentions, medical practice mentions, magic spells and witchcraft mentions, snake mentions, bird mentions, and cat mentions. So if any of those are a trigger for you, please give this episode a miss. Right, now that that's out of the way, let's get this solar barge flying. And don't worry, I'll explain what that means later. So to get this party started, did you know that the pyramids weren't actually built by slaves? Yeah, I know, most people think that the pyramids were built by slave labor, but actually, the people who built the pyramids weren't slaves, but they were paid workers. Yeah, that's right, they were paid, and paid well, I might add. See, the whole myth about the pyramids being built by slaves started with the ancient Greek writer Herodotus. Now, Herodotus is sometimes called the father of history, due to his habit of writing down reports of people from all over the Bronze Age world, but in my opinion, a far more accurate name for him is the contemporary sobriquet by his critics, the father of lies. Now, why do I think this? Well, among other things, Herodotus wrote that the famed ancient city of Babylon was built of mud bricks, but still stood roughly 100 meters or 328 feet in height, which is the size of a very tall office building. Speaking as an archaeologist, there is no way you would be able to build a mud brick building that high. It's just not possible. The point is, anything that Herodotus wrote must be taken with a very large grain of salt. Again, back on topic, Herodotus wrote that the pyramids were built by 100,000 Egyptian slaves who, and I quote, labored constantly and were relieved every three months by a fresh gang of slaves. End quote. This is wrong. You see, during the off-season for farming, the peasants and villagers who worked in the fields were required to perform almost a kind of civic service. According to most estimates made by modern archaeologists, the rough number of primary workers, by which I mean quarry workers, haulers, and masons, is between is somewhere around about 4,000 people. This would have been supported by between 16,000 and 20,000 secondary workers, by which I mean ramp builders, tool makers, mortar mixers, and those supplying backup services, such as supplying food, clothing, and fuel. In total, this gives a rough workforce of between 20,000 and 24,000 workers. They actually did a test a couple of years back, archaeologists did a test, that basically determined that with modern-day technology, as close as they can replicate true ancient tech, the these would easily be able to get a sizable amount of one pyramid built over the course of a year. And not just like going around the clock, like Herodotus says, we're talking actually working only during the off-season while the Nile is flooded and the fields are being being growing. That means it is theoretically possible that that number could have worked in over maybe, instead of multi-generational, like Herodotus says, it would have only been a couple of decades, maybe 20 or 30 years at the very most, just to build one pyramid. Considering that there were three pyramids at Giza, all of a rough similar size, that's actually quite doable, considering the amount of people. Moreover, Khufu, the first um, Egyptian pharaoh to build pyramids at Giza, 
he simply didn't have 100,000 slaves at his disposal. And even if he did employ 100,000 people working around the clock seven days a week for three months at a time before being replaced, the amount of strain and sheer trauma that would put on Egypt's workforce, who they relied on, I might add, to have stuff like bread and the local produce, all that stuff, not to mention the military, it would simply not be feasible. As for the whole they were slaves debate, archaeologists have found numerous records of the workers being paid regular wages of bread, garlic, onions, beer, and lodgings. Now, side note, getting beer as part of your wages isn't actually as crazy as it sounds. In ancient Egypt, beer was by far a much healthier and safer drink than water from the Nile. And in addition, the way it was brewed meant that beer was actually very nutritious and healthy for you. Basically, it was akin to liquid bread, albeit with a 10% alcoholic volume, which, quite frankly, was needed to kill off all the pollution and germs in the Nile. Even to this day, the Nile is one of the most polluted rivers on the planet. Do not, If you're going to Egypt for a holiday, whatever you do, don't go swimming in it. You will regret it. In fact, the archaeological community has records of ancient Egyptians, or the pyramid workers, going on strike over their wages being a day late. That just shows that they actually were capable of standing up for themselves. They weren't slaves, they were paid, and that's actually, incidentally, the first recorded labor strike in history. Alright, fact number two. Now, going back to that comment I made about getting the solar barge flying, I was referring to the Egyptian myth of Ra's journey across the sky. You see, the ancient Egyptians believed that their god Ra, spelt R-A, or sometimes Re, as in I-R-E, yeah, was some was literally the personification of the sun, and as such, he often is depicted in tomb paintings, temple carvings, and on papyrus documents as a man with the head of a falcon or an eagle, with a solar disc on top of his head encircled by a snake. Ra was one of, if not the most powerful uh, of the Egyptian pantheon. We're talking the pharaoh of the gods. He is beyond belief in terms of sheer scope and power. And according to the myths, every day, Ra would sail across the sky in a solar barge, bringing light and life to the world. Each night, Ra journeyed into the Egyptian underworld, known as a duat, spelt D-U-A-T, accompanied by three other deities, usually chosen for their strength. And so, while he was down there, he would do battle with his mortal enemy, the primordial embodiment of chaos, the giant serpent Apep, also known as Apophis. Now, side note before I go on, Egyptian divinity and mythology didn't really focus on the whole good versus evil thing. It was more a case of order versus chaos. Ra represented order, the order in which the world should be and needs to work in. Apophis represented chaos in its most primordial, vicious, cruel form. We're talking the chaos of storms, of the desert, of anything that is chaotic and evil. That's what Apophis was in his literal manifestation of. So each night, Apophis and Ra would fight each other in a delightful death battle for who would rule the universe. And every night, Ra would succeed in decapitating the monstrous serpent, and the sun would rise across the, the next morning to go across the sky. But... While Ra sailed across the sky each day, Apophis would regenerate. And once Ra entered the Duat as the sun dipped below the horizon, well, their battle would begin anew. So, fact number three is about how the god Horus lost his eye, and how the subsequent symbol evolved into a symbol still used in medicine to this day. 
Now, if you're a long-time listener of this podcast, you'll have heard me talk about Horace in the second episode of Myth vs. Media. If you haven't listened to the episode, here's a brief synopsis of Horace. Put simply, to say that he was popular in ancient Egypt would be like saying that the Egyptian sun in the desert at noon during summer is only slightly warm. Horus is quite possibly the most popular deity in Egyptian society, with the possible exceptions of Bast, Isis, and Jehuti, more commonly known to the modern world as Thoth. You see, Horus was a protector of the pharaoh and the royal family, and given that the ancient Egyptians believed that the pharaoh was a literal god in human form, that meant that Horus was an incredibly important god in the Egyptian pantheon. All that stuff you already know if you've been listening to the podcast, but what you may not know is how the famous symbol known as the Eye of Horus, one of the most instantly recognizable symbols of Egyptian mythology and culture, became associated with medicine and healing. You see, according to the myths, Horus had a serious blood feud with his uncle Set. I won't go into the full story of the origins of the feud now, as that would take an entire episode in and of itself, but the short, short version, yes, it was a Spaceballs reference, is that Horus's dad, Osiris, was pharaoh, but then he was murdered and his throne usurped by his brother Set, Osiris's wife Isis and their son Horus went on the run, and Horus grew up craving revenge on his uncle. Incidentally, Osiris, after he died, became the god of the underworld and the first mummy, and thus became immeasurably more powerful than he ever could as a living pharaoh. Now, when Horus came of age, he confronted Set, and the two of them had a fight that went on for ten straight years without a break, and which created the Sahara Desert. And the only reason they managed to take a break at all is because in the heat of battle, Set managed to cut out Horus's left eye. Horus ran off into the desert and wandered there for a full year, half blind and wounded, and he was eventually saved by his wife, the goddess Hathor. Now, if you've been a long time listening, you'll remember that Hathor is the Dr. Jekyll to Sekhmet's Mr. Hyde. That's another story. Please listen to the Myth vs. Media episode on Egypt for the full story. Now, Hathor found Horus near death on the shores of an oasis, and spying a nearby goat, milked it and poured the goat's milk directly into Horus's empty eye socket. Horus's missing eye grew back instantly, but there was a difference. See, before, Horus had possessed two golden eyes, which each shined as brightly as the sun. After Hathor healed him, Horus now was the owner of one golden eye, his right eye, and one silver eye, his left one. The golden eye was still glowed as bright as a midday sun, but the silver eye only glowed as bright as the moon at its fullest and brightest. Fully healed, Horus and Set resumed their battle. And this went on for another 10 years before Ra stepped in and called a ceasefire. Ra then ordered them both to appear before all the gods of the Egyptian pantheon and state their cases as to why they should be made fairer. However, when the time came for Ra to make his decision, Osiris appeared from the underworld and said that if his son Horus wasn't made pharaoh, then he, Osiris, would unleash every single demon and monster into, in the Duat onto the world. Now, Ra pretty much had no choice but to declare Horus the pharaoh, and Set became the god of storms in the desert. But don't mistake Set for a pure bad guy, though. See, he was extremely loyal to Ra, to the point that when Ra would choose Set to accompany him on his journey to the underworld each night, it would be as his bodyguard to make sure that Apophis couldn't cheat and send in monsters to kill Ra. Because of that, the uh, because of this legend, the Eye of Horus was widely used as a symbol of medicine, healing, and protection in ancient Egypt, and to this day, it's actually very commonly used by pagans and people on the metaphysical side of things 
as a symbol of protection. I'm actually wearing an Eye of Horus amulet in the studio right now, and it's one of my favorite necklaces. In addition, there is a theory that the modern symbol for medicine, RX, is actually a very distant descendant of the Eye of Horus. And whether that theory is true or not, I honestly don't know, but it'd be pretty cool if it was, wouldn't it? Okay, on to fact number four. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, folks, and assume that most of you listening to this episode have at least seen at least one of the two Brendan Fraser mummy movies set in Egypt. By the way, don't worry about the scene in the third film, the one set in China. It's bloody terrible. If you haven't seen them, pause this episode and go watch them now. All right, so how were they? Pretty good, right? The problem is those films are notoriously inaccurate, from an archaeological perspective at least. You see, they're based on the 1932 Universal Horror Classic starring Boris Karloff. No such, they are not accurate, archaeologically speaking. In fact, side note before I get into the fact that I'm going to talk about, back in when the first movie came out in 1999, the Egyptian government actually banned it saying that it was depicting Egyptian mythology and history in a negative light. The When the second one came out in 2001, the Egyptian government convened an international panel of archaeologists and Egyptologists to look at the film and work out, okay, is this film actually going to be okay to air in Egyptian TV? The archaeologists came back and said, it's not at all accurate, but as long as you know that and you're not claiming it is, then it's fine. So that gives you an idea of how inaccurate these films are from an archaeological perspective. That being said, they're some of my favorite films of all time. I grew up with them. And quite frankly, the Tom Cruise reboot can suck a lemon. Like seriously, that was a just bad film. And the first in Mummy movies are classics. Now, uh, the thing is that the fun fact what you may not know is in, in real life, Imhotep, the bad guy in the first two Mummy movies, was actually a major good guy for Egyptian society. See, the Mummy movies tried to state that Imhotep was around during the reign of Seti I, the 19th dynasty pharaoh of Egypt from the roughly 1294 BC or 1290 BC to 1279 BC, and Seti was the father of Ramesses II. However, the real-life Imhotep lived somewhere during the reign of um, the third dynasty pharaoh, Djosa, who ruled Egypt between roughly 2686 BCE and 2648 BCE. Bit of a time difference there, isn't there? And it gets worse. The real Imhotep wasn't a pharaoh killing undead monstrosity, but he, rather he was a renowned physician, an engineer, and a devout high priest of Ra, the city of Heliopolis. Now, quite frankly, Imhotep is... It's like comparing saying Leonardo da Vinci is Frankenstein's monster. In fact, Imhotep is created with designing the very first pyramid, Zosa's Step Pyramid at Saqqara. Eventually, years after his death, he was actually deified, Imhotep, I mean, was actually deified and made into a god of healing and medicine. I mean, you don't do that to someone who's a monster. That just doesn't make sense. Okay, so our final fact about uh, Egypt today is about the various types of pets in ancient Egypt. More specifically, it's about cats. See, as Terry Pratchett once said, the ancient Egyptians worshipped cats as gods, and cats have never forgotten this. They, that, this is actually true. Well, at least the worshipping cats as god part, that is. You see, cats were sacred in ancient Egypt, to the point that to hurt a cat was a crime that carried a death sentence unless it was an act of mercy. In fact, side note, this actually was the reason for one of the Egyptian army's biggest defeats, 
because the Persian army they were facing held up cats in front of them, and the Egyptians, not wanting to hurt the cats, willingly surrendered the battle. Now, why this whole devotion to cats? Well, remember how I mentioned the goddess Bast in the fact about Horus's eye? Well, Bast was a goddess of cats in ancient Egypt, but to limit her to just that would be doing her an immense disservice. Bast, also known as Bastet, was the goddess of children, mothers, childbirth, music, fun, games, drinking, and the protector of families and the pharaoh. She was easily one of the most popular deities in ancient Egypt, and as such, cats were sacred to her. And if there's one thing I know, is that you don't ever want to aggravate a deity of protection. Side note here, for modern day feminists and for pagans in the modern day, Barsasins become a very big... You know, well, symbol, I guess you could say, of sexual health and sexual activity, as well as being a lesbian. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that that isn't true. If you want to think that, that's up to you. What I'm saying is that Bast was a god of fun times in ancient Egypt, but I honestly don't know much more than that. Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to The Raven's Grove. I've been Dahi, you've been awesome, I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.